Welcome to the CEC report for the 6th of October 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Lisa. And today's show we've got gas crisis demands nationalisation debate and will we won't we Australia and the Belt and Road. So firstly gas crisis demands nationalisation debate. Now last week's show we spent quite a bit of time talking about the nationalisation debate in the United Kingdom which has really taken off and in fact there's a major uh, shift underway. Uh, even the Financial Times the other day described it as an intellectual revolution taking place in British politics which is fascinating and it's really exemplified actually by the uh, two party conferences. We showed some of the Labor Party's annual conference on the show last week and this week the Conservative Party conference occurred. Um, of course at the Labor Party conference it went extremely well. They had uh, very high membership numbers that were there. They've got a lot of new people in the party. Um, the group around Jeremy Corbyn have taken a strong uh, control of the party with elections that occurred and so forth and votes. And Labor's membership over there in the UK is now twice that of all the other UK political parties put together. Mm. So they had closed a 25 point gap yeah. to bring a hung parliament in a situation where it was said for months that they could never ever win. And now the press is saying Theresa May could be gone by the end of the year, there could be a new election. I mean it's, it's very dicey how it's standing now. And then you look at the Conservative Party conference and Theresa May, I mean, I felt sorry for her actually because everything that could go wrong at that conference went wrong. You've probably seen the footage um, on the news last night of, you know, the sign falling down in the background, her being interrupted by a comedian, uh, her coughing fits and so forth. But that's just indicative of where the party is actually. Um, yeah, it's lost support from the people, Elise, and that was shown at the last election. And, you know, politics is not governed. Believe it or not, the media, the establishment would like you to believe that that the ruling classes are governed by the, the by, by the media and by ruling yeah. classes, they're not. They're governed by the people, mm. by the many, not the few, yeah. as Corbyn has been saying. So what you're seeing with the Conservative Party is the walls, the wheels are falling off because none of their policies are actually re ma matching up with the reality of what the many of the people. Yeah having to deal with. Well listen to this because um, of course John McDonnell, the shadow, treasure, cha shadow Chancellor I should say for the Labor Party had said at the party conference we're going to renationalise you know rail you know the Royal Post everything basically um, and this is a poll that came out in October by Legatum Institute which was headlined public opinion in the post-Brexit era economic attitudes in modern Britain it found 83% of Britons favoured nationalising water 76% favoured nationalising railways, 77% for gas and electricity, 66% for defence and aerospace, and 50% uh, favoured nationalising the banks, although it went up to 60 and higher with the younger age brackets. So that shows you how you know the population has, I mean they've always felt that way in a sense, but it's not till a crisis hits that suddenly they realise the disaster that we've had and how actually it can be changed. And the sentiment is exactly the same here. Yeah, we, found, we found that at the Adelaide show. Now we mentioned on, on this show a number of times that we were going to be at the Adelaide show, which we had a stall. And you know, Adelaide has the most expensive electricity mm. prices in the world. And this, was a this is a major issue for people in South Australia. And ironically, you know, the, the, the Premier over there, Weatherall, has come out and 
made it very clear that he may end up nationalising, i.e. retaking control of the state's electricity assets because of this issue. Mm. So this is not, uh, this idea of the state taking control of vital economic infrastructure like electricity and, and water and so forth is, is not that far off here in Australia. It's just below the surface. And then when you look at all the public outrage, particularly with things like uh, aged care, Elisa, where old, old people, old aged care has been left to private companies to deliver and yeah. there are consequently terrible, terrible stories coming out of the abuse where you have this, these private institutions, large, large institutions, large companies running private healthcare for private profit against the welfare of elderly citizens and the sort of abuses that happen where you have all these shortcuts taken for the profits of these companies, you start to see that there's a role for governments to step in and say, hang on, whoa, you cannot have certain areas of an economy, of a society run by uh, corporations that are out for nothing more than private gain, or you want to put it into a five-letter word, call it greed, because that's actually at the end of the day what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what what you're seeing in the, the UK is that you've had decades of economic rationalism, like with what, what we've had here in Australia, where public utilities, electricity, water and so forth have been either corporatised or they've literally been privatised and sold off. And you've seen the uh, electricity prices here go from something like 7 cents per kilowatt hour up to, you know, 25, 30 cents per kilowatt hour, you know. And there's no reason for that. The reason is that it's happened is because you've got private corporations literally ripping the guts out of the, the market and they're going to private profits. Mm. Right, so there's a huge debate mm. in the UK and the, 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 the Labor Party, John McDonald's come out and says, no, we intend to renationalise the electricity industry, the water, the public transport. And of course, he's getting a tremendous support because people know that they're being, well, they know that their water supply, for example, is already in mm. big trouble. Yeah, I mean, think about how the Australian population would react if an Australian politician got up like John McDonnell and said those things today. I mean, because the gas industry is a classic example of what you said about ripping out the private profit, because here we are, we have ample gas, you know, for over 100 years or more, or indefinite as some experts put it, supply, there's more that we haven't yet found. We can produce it extremely cheaply. I mean, we've often sent it overseas for a cheaper price than what we sell it here in Australia. Um, so there's obviously a private cartelisation because of the policies of deregulation and privatisation that have got, has gone on and it needs to be investigated and brought to account. Now, what we called for this week, and we have a media release going out today, calling for a national champion, by which we mean creating a vertically integrated state-owned corporation that will develop oil and gas resources for the benefit of the entire country. So you, it would mean that we can deliver gas at cost price to Australian citizens and businesses and industry in particular, which right now are being sabotaged and shut down. And it would mean that the export earnings from what we do sell overseas, once we've filled our own necessities, would go into the public coffers. Mm. So the debate on renationalisation can be spurred, I think, by this particular issue, but there's many others. Um, there's many things that can be uh, nationalised federally, Craig, but there's also the question of the state level where electricity and so forth comes under that responsibility. And, of course, we've had 
this um, policy which was put up by Joe Hockey, which incentivised state governments to privatise state assets. And what we can do is basically reverse that, can't we? Yeah, Lisa, this is not going to be an academic argument. Because, look, what we're already seeing with the gas prices is that industries are shutting down. You know, there's a abattoirs here in, uh, in in Melbourne. You know, the electricity, their, their gas prices are going up, their power prices are going up over a million dollars because of this issue. So they're literally having to shut back, or cut back on production, lay workers off. Now, this is not just in Melbourne. This is this fact is happening all over the country. Now, when you get these sorts of issues, the population starts to rise up and says, we don't want this. Mm. So it's a real issue that has to be solved. So governments are going to have to react to this. They're going to have to deal with this particular solution. That means overturning decades of this economic rationalism and this idea of privatisation you know, and, mm. and, and pandering to the, the interests of private corporation first and foremost is, the, is, is going to have to be overturned. So therefore, the mechanisms actually that we have mm. proposed is, is one that the, the national, the federal government can use, and that is we've proposed that we have an, a new national bank, a Commonwealth National Credit Bank. And in our legislation that we've already written for this bank would be to have seven divisions. And you would literally create the credit necessary, like the banks create it now, and you would issue that credit to the state governments in an orderly way to literally be able to take back, mm. to buy back in an orderly way, those particular state industries that necessarily have to be brought back under state control. So it's done in an orderly way, but it's brought back into the control of governments for the benefit of the people. And the profits and the, you know, the, 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 is then seen in terms of lower prices in power, lower prices in water, and other basic economic infrastructure. So that's the mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there's also the complexities with the Australian Constitution when you're dealing with the states and so forth, but we actually need to have a debate because it's going to be driven by the necessity for Australians to have ba absolutely you know, first-rate basic economic infrastructure and we can no longer tolerate this economic rationalism, privatisation rubbish that's seen us literally being looted blind by private corporations mm. and our natural resources given away overseas, mm. in effect. And I'll just add too, because of this this shift that you see happening here in the UK. It's happening in the US too, of course. They've had these three terrible hurricanes. Puerto Rico's been wiped out entirely. Um, and up until now, the working principle was um, for infrastructure rebuilding PPPs, public-private partnerships. But it's very interesting to note uh, this week that President Trump actually came out in a discussion with a congressional committee on infrastructure that he said the PPP approach doesn't work. And this is what uh, people that were in the meeting told the media is that Trump dismissed it categorically and said that it is not the silver bullet for all our nation's infrastructure problems. So that's the sign of the same shift against this public ripping out the profit and uh, changing that back to the public good. Now we're going to talk about another aspect of that after this break, which is Australia joining with the Belt and Road and developing its country. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Will we, won't we, Australia and the Belt and Road? So Craig, suddenly there's been quite a flurry of discussion coming out of various political and institutional layers about whether Australia should join the Belt and Road Initiative. And we've been talking about this for years, um, particularly with the context of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And then of course, what China has driven with this Belt and Road Initiative to bring 
countries together for mutual economic collaboration and to uplift the world economy. But Australia has been negative from the get-go. Uh, remember, when this current parliament was elected and the parliamentarians showed up at Canberra, one of the first things they were handed was the uh, parliamentary library's briefing book, which had a whole section on the Belt and Road and uh, basically said that politicians should be very cautious about this, that they questioned China's intention, um, painting it as a block to counter the United States, that that's what China aims to do. When Chinese Premier Li Keqiang came to Australia in March, um, he had a memorandum of understanding ready to go, but Australia refused to sign that. New Zealand has signed on to such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and at the Shangri-La dialogue in June, both Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Foreign Minister Julie Bishop um, lectured China on, you know, they mustn't coerce countries, breach sovereignty. Um, Julie Bishop said, we have no desire for anyone other than the US to call the shots in the region. So we've hung on to the Anglo-American domination of the region. Um, and Bob Carr on the 22nd of September, former New South Wales Premier and Foreign Minister for Labor, uh, he said that this year Australia declared rhetorical war on China, uh, which is very true. And he said our tone with China has been harsher than any other US ally, including Japan. However, this week, the Labor Party uh, shadow treasurer, Chris Bowen, has changed the tone a little bit. Uh, he's called for a new policy engagement with Asia over long term, beyond mere momentary governments, called Future Asia, where he said we want to uh, usher in a step change in thinking uh, in regard to Asia. And he said basically we only pay lip service to um, China. We say, oh, we're in the backyard, we're in the region. But, you know, he pointed out the fact that um, Berlin is closer to, to Beijing than Sydney is. So that's really not enough for us just to say we're here. Mm. You know, we have to actually engage. Um, so there was only brief reference in his speech to the actual Belt and Road Initiative. He did mention it. He said it would have profound ramifications for years to come. And he said that a Labor government would examine proposals on a case-by-case -case basis, including consideration of how the Northern Australian Infrastructure Facility and the Belt and Road Initiative can best complement each other. So, I mean, that's, you know, not going the whole hog as we would, but it's a step in the right direction. But, of course, they always say good things when they're op in opposition, don't they? Oh, well, that's right, Lisa, but you have to understand, I mean, the Belt and Road is such a powerful and, you know, energised initiative in the region. It's already been picked up by many, many business people inside Australia. And, you know, the, the fact is that it's already driving a yeah. lot of economic activity inside Australia. And we're stuck in sort of like the equivalent of a Cold War mentality yeah. of this pro-British, pro-American, you know, pro-Barack Obama, you know, Asia pivot paradigm, which is absolutely pathetic. Now, we can't stay stuck in that paradigm forever because look at the changes that have yeah, taken place. it's not place the reality anymore. With Donald Trump, right? Look at the, the mm. reality that's taking place in the world with the collapse of our economy. We've just shut down our major car producers and so forth. And we can't stay in that paradigm. And the Labor government knows that, right? They, they know that they're going to be coming into power potentially in a very short period of time. So they're starting to posture. Now, how much that posturing turns into real policy, well, one can be cynical and say, well, that's what they do in mm. opposition, right? But it's an interesting paradigm that they could shift into. If that happens, Australia... It, look, Albanese's been talking about high-speed rail. Yeah. 
If he was a Prime Minister today, maybe we'd already be beginning to build high-speed rail systems in collaboration with China. So there is a real chan chance of a change here towards something that's much more positive and we can move yeah. away from this insanity. Because they're acting within a different global framework. It's not them on their own. They're slotting into something that will actually drag them along with the, the tide. And you see, um, it's like old, you have these older politicians, you have former prime ministers like we saw with Malcolm Fraser. Um, Hawke and Keating have actively supported the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Gareth Evans just came out in a National Press Club address where he said, look, Australia is going to be left behind. So it's kind of just obvious that, you know, here's the flow. We've got to get along with that motion. Uh, and the New South Wales opposition leader too, uh, Labor's Luke Foley, uh, he was a bit more pointed than Chris Bowen last week when he said not joining the BRI was economic suicide. And he also said, well, you just said that there's a Cold War mentality going on, um, which was echoed by... Um, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, head, Peter Jennings, who's you know a regular China basher, where he was horrified that Chris Bowen could give a whole speech about Asia policy and not mention um, you know missiles, North Korea, the nuclear threat, the South China Sea, and he talked about um, unstated or unspecified negative consequences of becoming a partner in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, now, actually, Treasurer Scott Morrison. Uh, did sign a memorandum of understanding with China when he was there in mid-September to cooperate with the Belt and Road in third-party countries so that we can take advantage of getting some of the cheap funding that China's putting out. But, you know, why would we not want to focus on building our own country as number one? This slowly, slowly approach actually has to change and we have to get on board. Absolutely. I mean, this is the future, Elisa, and the need for innovation and real you know future thinking leaders is what we need in this country instead mm. of it's very easy to construct construct a future based upon past paradigms right idea sticking with the past mm. we need innovation we need you know visionaries in the parliament to say we need to build this we need to cooperate xi jinping's idea of a win-win cooperation is far different than the, the old dynamic of, you know, there must be win winners and there must be losers with the old British geostrategic thinking policy mm. that we've been stuck in. Yep. That and means we've got to get rid of the leaders that think that way. Yep. And after the break, we'll talk about um, one of the hardest things to change, which is the free market monetarist thinking. Welcome back to the CC Report, where we're talking about whether Australia will finally join the Belt and Road Initiative. And every week we cover this subject pretty much in the Australian Alert Service. There's more detail on what we've talked about to, on today's show in here. If you haven't already called in, call us. We'll send you a free copy. If you have or if you haven't want to find out more, just call in, talk to us. We'll tell you how you can get involved. Um, now, on the question of changing uh, the approach, the economic framework that Australia has, which has to happen if we join the Belt and Road and if we want to have a future, in fact. Um, there was a, a call this week for an Australia-China commission from Australian National University economist Peter Drysdale, and it's a proposal for a joint operation to study the best ways for Australia and China to cooperate on bilateral and third-party infrastructure projects which is very good and the proposals they make, you know, it's genuine, a genuine call for real collaboration. Um, however, the study itself is expected to take two to three years, which is not good enough. It has to happen now. 
and also within the report, you can see the real um, axioms of the free market framework, you know, hitting you in the face as you read through it. Um, well, the report that I'm referring to is one that Drysdale was a co-author of called the Australia-China Joint Economic Report, and that was published a year ago. So in that report, um, apart from, you know, calling for the mutual collaboration, they also essentially call for China to abandon the state-directed investment policies that have made the infrastructure development and lifting nearly a billion people out of poverty work and return to the neoliberal free market policies that have destroyed Australia, basically. And they say Australia can help with this because we have experience in building a highly developed financial system. Yeah, one that's about to explode with a you know housing bubble and flooded with derivatives and so and forth. Shut down their manufacturing industries and you know and exported industries offshore and everything. Yes. Exactly. So this is just a real blind spot in this report. And I'll just quote one section so you get the idea. Market reforms, they say, and market determined interest rates and exchange rates will correct the misallocation of capital that has until now favoured particular regions, state-owned enterprises and the state banking sector and crowded out financing and investment from the more dynamic private sector. You know, the private sector like the one running our gas industry. Um, so, you know, uh, look, I just want to paint to people what China is doing here because they have a bigger agenda actually than just building infrastructure. They want to create a new financial architecture. Now, just to contrast firstly Australia with China on derivatives, um, China has a daily turnover in interest rate derivatives, just one type of derivatives of $4 billion. In that same category, Australia has $56 billion per day. Now for China, that's $2.80 per man, woman and child per day. In Australia, that's $2,300 per man, woman and child per day. So that's gambling. Our system's riddled with gambling. Now, on the other hand, China has had Glass-Steagall regulations in place since 1993. This was when the rest of the Western world were dismantling Glass-Steagall, which separates that kind of derivatives gambling and protects the people's deposits and commercial banking functions. China, at around the same period, created policy banks, which is this state banking sector that they said has to be gotten rid of in the report. Those banks funded not only China, but in the wake of the global financial crash, it kept, it's the only thing that kept the world going. They put out about $20 trillion of new credit, but it all went into something real, into real development. Um, in two, 2013, they launched the Belt and Road. They launched the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and with the BRICS Group, the National Development Bank to lift the strangulation of money on developing countries to allow them to develop. At the G20 summit last year at Hangzhou, um, a new path of development is what Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, called for, moving beyond fiscal and monetary policy alone. That's when he was really explicit about the need for a new global financial architecture. And even their recent financial reforms in regard to foreign investment, which many countries are complaining about, um, is part of drying up speculation because China's saying we don't want to invest in you know, whether it's sporting, gambling, housing bubble, etc., because that's not productive. And that's not to mention, you know, as we've talked about the construction, the development, and everything else. So which kind of system would you want? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, Lisa. There's plenty of things that we have to do in our country. There's a, there are plenty of people who want to build things in our country, but we have to have a government that's committed to really pushing these things, things forward, and we don't seem to have that. No, we don't. 
but we need one. So make sure you get onto your Member of Parliament and explain to him these ideas. So that's what we've got time for today. Thanks for joining me, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and join us next week.